0: Future Proof with Jonathan McCrae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. On News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. Coming up on this week's programme, there is no question that Liverpool would not be the team they are without the extraordinary skills of Alison Becker. One of the best goalkeepers in the world, if not the best, his uncanny anticipation of where he needs to be is mind-boggling. But that's because he doesn't see the world in the same way the rest of his team do. Find out why on Future Proof in a few minutes' time. Looking back at the week's science news uh, now and joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Ireland's favourite TV science guy, Phil Smith. Uh, You're both very welcome. Uh, Phil, our first story has to do with taste, which I find fascinating. The idea of uh, how we perceive the world and how we taste things has
2: always been interesting to me. Yeah, and you always have great tastes, especially with just that comment there. I appreciate that, Johnny. Really good. <laughs> um, we're talking about taste and scientists say they've discovered a sixth basic taste. Uh, if I was to ask you what were the tastes that you know of, what would you say?
1: Uh, bitter, sour, sweet, um, umami and
2: uh, Salty. 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 Yeah, there you go. Good, yeah, and they all have processes. Sweet for getting carbs, wouldn't mean to know about them. Uh, uh, sour for testing ripeness and toxins in it there. Salty for, you know, getting enough salt for water regulation into our systems. Bitter for testing for poisons. And then umami for intake of proteins is what we're, we're looking at. Oh, right. So that's why we've developed all these tastes. They yes. all have a specific function. They have a that. use. Okay. Yeah, okay. And, and that's, over time, you know, this has allowed us to survive and possibly why we have these ones that are more predominant than the others. Um, but in addition to all of these, we think that there's a new one. And, and this isn't something necessarily new there are scientists that are kind of always looking for ways and reasons about why we eat certain foods or trends or what comes into us and even that was, was true that there was only four originally that were origin that decided we had sweet, sour, salty and bitter uh, and until about a century ago a Japanese scientist called Kilkuri in Ikida first proposed umami and it was only about eight decades later that it was accepted. So it's a hard thing to get into. Now, he was actually one of the guys who founded the company that produced MSG originally as well. So really got a big, lots of research and pushing on this. But now, the University of California scientists maintain that there is a sixth basic taste and they've published their claim in Nature Communications uh, under the title The Proton Channel O-T-O-P-1 is a sensor for the taste of ammonium chloride. What? Yeah. Yeah. So you're not that necessarily... Not just another salt? Yeah. Exactly NACL, you, this is table salt, right? Yeah, but you're kind of... see well, NACL is, though, that, that's sodium, sodium chloride. chloride. Ah, so sorry, ammonium okay. chloride is the kind of stuff you'd have like in fertilisers or actually in... Uh, Bombs. Yes. Uh, thanks for knowing that. Uh, adhesion products as well. Um, but this neuroscientist and biological science uh, professor, uh, Emily Lyman, and her team found that the tongue responds to ammonium chloride through the same protein receptor that signals sour taste. And this is kind of significant if you live in a Scandinavian country because you might be familiar with the taste if you're there because there is in Northern European countries salt licorice has been a popular candy and since the early 20th century. And the treat it included among its flavour ingredients a uh, salmiac salt, which is where this sal ammoniac, where this ammoniac mm. acid comes from. So they've detected this taste and it has the same systems ranging from like the, the elgans and the humans that have been used to, you know, taste, figure out what we like. Um, and they're seeing that this, uh, why they're researching is that they might have the answer to why this specific receptor Sits in between cell membranes and allows for hydrogen ions moving into the cells. So we have receptors on our tongue, mostly on our tongue, are receptors. So it's what it's almost like you have kind of a protein, a key that only fits into a certain receptor that allows this flavor to go up, to go along. So what they're doing this, they're wondering how this kind of protein f- factor makes this access down, and they're trying to see about um, why it's useful to them. So they're kind of seeing like why they have something that is like in products like virtual. Which can always be somewhat toxic. Um, it, they kind of time to think about that it's another way to actually test if there's ammonia in f- food that you're, and ammonia is a sign that the food is spoiled. Right. So you're looking at that, okay, if I'm tasting a little bit of ammonia, maybe this has gone off. I see. Okay. So it's kind of like fitting into the yeah, original. And a lot kind.
0: of people hate that salt liquor yes. as well. Like it's a very much a marmite, maybe marmite. I don't no, know, I mean, yeah.
2: Kind of a mar- our marmite
1: receptor on our tongues. Mm. Um. I think it's unlikely to take off and become the sixth
2: sense, though. I think the, yeah, it's probably, yes. people aren't going to go, oh, they're not going to write little... No, I, I, this is the thing, we, because this is, like I said, a feel of that lots of people doing it. They've had to say the fat could be the next taste. So it's something like that guy took 80 years to get approved that umami was actually one of the receptors. So the fact that this one there is there might mean it is, but we're unlikely to have licorice as a taste sensation. soon. Um, Ruth, our second story has to do with parenting and closeness
0: it does so this is a study from the university of cambridge and it really was looking at the relationship between the um the relationships that we have early on in life and our mental well-being later on in life, particularly as, a, as an older child or an adolescent, but particularly in relation to something that researchers call our pro-social behaviour. And that's really about whether we're kind, empathetic, generous, all of those traits that we think are are generally good traits to have in society. So these researchers, they used a study that's been going on for, for over 20 years in, in the UK. It's called the Millennium Cohort Study. They enrolled about early on, at the beginning of the century, they enrolled nearly 11,000 babies into this study and they've been going back to monitor them uh, intermittently over the course of the last couple of decades. And when they go back to to see these uh, people, they get them to do online surveys, but they also meet them face to face. And interestingly, they also do things like meet their caregivers. So they meet their parents, they meet people who've minded them in creche. So they get a really good picture of what's going on in mm. these people's lives. And what they found was a really clear link between these kind of pro-social behaviours as adolescents and a really close and loving bond with a parent up to age three. So what they found was in the the kind of units that they use, nearly a sort of quarter point or 25% increase in these pro-social behaviours in in adolescents when they had been classified to have had a very close, warm and loving relationship with their, their parents or caregivers up to the age of three.
1: What, 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 I mean, how do you classify a loving, of course, I'm immediately thinking about my children under the age of three and whether or not I was a good parent. <laughs> Aren't you um, <we> all? <laughs> uh, what, 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 what counts as pro-social?
0: So, so they actually had, they had reports from health visitors who actually observed the families, but they did have surveys. So one of the things, again, it's sort of, they, they would ask the parents, for example, um, smack the child. Does that happen? Never. Sometimes daily. Um, They would have questions for the the closeness scale Uh, does your child openly share their feelings with you does your child get angry with you so they had a whole load of questions built in that able that enabled them to kind of extrapolate how close this relationship was and they were able to factor in things like socioeconomic background you know age episodic things that happened so that they had quite complex statistics and they were trying to find out kind of what is the basal rate here or or you know that that sort of persists and and i think the other thing that they found was there were changes in this pro social behavior over time because mm. they've been looking at these these children over time but actually in terms of this baseline resiliency or resilience, that didn't really seem to change. So what what they've said actually is kind of, if you're kind of in a good mental place at three, you'll probably stay in quite a good mental place Mm. as you move into adolescence. Um, there's a bit more God, variability. That's really
1: early, isn't it?
0: It's very early on. yeah, yeah. and yeah. I mean it's interesting because really what they've pointed at is like the importance of that close time with parents and children and, and they and it's unusual for researchers to go this far. They say when you look at modern parents and how much stress they're under and how many things they're trying to juggle and how often they have compressed times with their children that are actually quite high pressure, um, because of the scheduling that they're under and they're saying really governments need to think about how do you create less pressure for yeah. early parents because these qualities that develop are the kind of qualities we need in society yeah. and we now are seeing a very clear correlation
1: Yeah uh, uh, I mean this is a particularly good week to be talking about this. I mean they have a very very busy week and I think uh, you know I-, I think it's crazy how we're living our lives m- our modern lives I mean I really do think you know, my, my son gets about 10 minutes to eat his lunch. Yeah. And like in France, you know, eat, eat an hour and a half. Yeah. It's an hour and a half to I sit down, so. be social, eat your food. We, we, there's so many things that we need to think about. Um, our third story, uh, Phil, has to do with frogs.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Segway from France to frogs. Perfect. Uh, we'll go in there. Um, You've got to kiss a lot of them to find your prince uh, a lot of the time. Uh, but this is sometimes you got to play dead to find your prince which is a little bit weird this story is um, unusual in the sense we're going to be talking about uh, frog reproduction as we go through this and it seems to be from researchers saying that female frogs appear to fake death to avoid unwanted advances which is quite drastic Yeah, um, to go but it's something that is quite necessary uh, in a lot of ways because avoiding unwanted male attention uh, is kind of a way to avoid death as it can happen because this is something that often happens in the frog species and it's been something that's been observed for a long time. Like even really? back in 2022 in, uh, there was a fossil bed in Germany that was discovered and there was a really rich kind of layout of kind of ancient fossils from 45 million years ago and there was lots of frogs who were ha- seemed to have died Mating, and the reason is that you mate, uh, frogs will mount on top uh, of the female frog and push her under the water so she can't breed. Hold on to her uh, mate, and then the female frog will die. So it is a. Janey. it's a drastic, It's pretty dark yeah. Phil. Sorry, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, but, so it's something that's been happening for for a long time. So it's previously thought that they would use like they were unable to choose to defend themselves ab- ab- against this male coercion, which is basically what the research, like Dr. Carolyn uh, Dietrich, which is the first author of this study. Um, she works in the National History uh, Museum in Berlin. Uh, and what they've kind of been doing, and they've been writing in the, the Royal Journal of like, Royal Society of Open Science uh, to say that the results, uh, they had 54 females um, it, put into tanks and they would put a small female and a large female and then they would introduce a male into it. And they revealed that 83% of the females were gripped, by, right. when gripped by a male, would try to rotate their body to avoid the act. Right, shall we okay. say. Um, and this is kind of they were emitting squeals and grunts from about 48% and they were also more predominantly from the smaller females. Right. So they were trying to defend themselves in this kind of situation. I'm too small, you're too big or whatever else. It is trying to move away and then what actually happened that they observed in a third of them and particularly again more predominantly in the smaller females was something called tonic immobility which is essentially the stiffening of the arms and legs in a kind of a outstretched pattern reminiscent of being dead that meant that the male female was less interested and it meant that about a quarter of them got away and weren't in trouble. It had originally been seen in the 1700s, been rediscovered kind of now but they see that this is also potentially a a, a life-saving mechanic but also a way potentially to test how strong the males are. So it has a dual process. So please don't kill me, but also are you strong enough that we will have uh, potential babies that will survive? Natures cool. Something to talk about um, this evening with
1: your family. Um, (laughs) Ruth, our final story, um, From Death to More Death.
0: So this is research that came out this month in the journal Resuscitation and it's from researchers in the New York University School of Medicine. And they were trying to understand what happens when we die. And they had a study, quite a large study group of nearly 600 patients in hospitals in the US and in the UK. And these patients all had cardiac arrests. And uh, as anyone that knows that's done first aid, if someone has a cardiac arrest, you're going to go in and do CPR. But only about 10% of people will actually survive after a cardiac arrest. Um, so in in the, this case of this study group uh, around uh, over 200 of the people the medical teams got circulation going but only just over 50 people survived. Um, of those 50 people um, about half of them were then sort of studied and they completed detailed interviews and questionnaires about how what had been going on for them wow. when they had appeared entirely unresponsive and unconscious during the CPR. And about 40% of them reported that they had perceptions, memories, consciousness, dreams, um, sort of sensations going on, while there didn't appear to the medical team to be anything going on. Wow! Um, And I think what was particularly interesting, though, about this study was that they were able to get... ECG activity for 85 of the patients in the overall group. It's not actually clear how many of those died and survived, so obviously some in both groups. So what they actually did as the patient was having the cardiac arrest, they actually put an, an EEG on their brain to look at their brain waves. They're very clear to say it didn't interfere with the medical treatment for these patients at all, but they, they were able to see what's going on in the brain. And what they found was initially some seizure-like activity emerged but then other kinds of brain activity started to happen wow. so different kind of brain brain waves and even brain waves that we associate with consciousness and with our kind of higher cognitive functions started to come back and they started to come back and they persisted for up to an hour in these patients and um, there wasn't and and, and,
1: and, and all, all this while they were as far as Brent we knew Seeker. clinically dead
0: Clinic dead heart had stopped circulation, had effectively stopped apart from the CPR, which was obviously trying to artificially get that going. But mm. there was no, there was the, the, the patient wasn't breathing for themselves, nothing was going on, and, and there was no visible signs of any activity, any groaning, any distress. Yeah, I mean, and, this must
1: be a, a bit of a landmark study in, in, in some respects because getting an EEG on a patient that's dying, like how do they get I of
0: yeah, and, and they did that? this across a whole load of different hospitals. And I mean, it's interesting because. I mean, if you've ever done... Again, if you do first aid and you get to, are taught how to do CPR, a, a good first aid will always say you should keep talking to the person as though they are conscious. Yeah. But interestingly, actually, a lot of the medics that commented on this study said, well, once we're doing CPR, we don't even treat that... We we generally don't do that. And and I think there is... You know, for the medical community, this is about, you know, we need to be thinking differently about someone in, in that early stage after they've had a cardiac arrest. Um, and yeah, it also says look after your heart
1: Yeah, wow that's a fascinating we've got to do a feature on that Marais we're going to we're going to follow up on that very sad but still absolutely fascinating from a scientific point of view Um, Dr Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and uh, TV Science Guy Phil Smith Uh, thanks very much for joining us Uh, Okay, on the way why do goalkeepers see the world a little bit differently to the rest of their teammates? Now, when it comes to elite sports, there are many attributes that set the best apart from the rest. Not only uh, do you probably have to have won the genetic lottery in the physical stakes, but also the mentality to persevere and work tirelessly to get to the top of the pile. So with all that setting them apart from those of us sitting on the couch, do some athletes perceive the world differently too? Well, my next guest has been conducting research looking to answer that very question. He's David McGovern, Assistant Professor in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University. Uh, David, welcome to the programme. What got you interested in in this uh, area of research?
3: Um, So that's a very interesting question. Um, This area of research came about from the first author, uh, Michael Quinn, who himself was a professional goalkeeper. And Michael was interested in this idea, this commonly held idea that goalkeepers are different. And specifically what he wanted to look at was whether goalkeepers had different perceptual or cognitive skills. Um, So he came back to uh, the School of Psychology in DCU to do his final year project and I was assigned as a supervisor. So uh, we got discussing about what the experience was like of being a goalkeeper and from this, it became clear in our initial conversations that it's actually a very multisensory pursuit, being a goalkeeper. It's not just visual information that goalkeepers use, like you might expect. They also use auditory cues as well to make their judgments about when to, um, you know, uh, dive for a, a shot or something like that. Uh, so we decided to look at this, you know, specifically how we combine auditory and visual information in something called multisensory integration, which is how we combine the senses.
1: Right. Um, what, what auditory cues do goalkeepers look at for?
3: All sorts of things, but, uh, you know, the sort of the loudness of the ball, the pitch of the ball, things like this. Right. He often uses the analogy of a golfer. You know, a golfer knows when they've hit a sweet shot. Similarly, a goalkeeper will use the auditory cues, sort of the pitch or the tone of it, to know how fast the ball is coming and whether they need to, like, sort of jump very quickly or to react. Right. Uh, yeah. OK. So um, how do you study something like this? So what we did was um, we got uh, goalkeepers and outfield players and a control group who with no elite performance, no uh, background in elite performance, to do a very simple task.
1: Did, I mean, did they play f- regular football, like five-a-side, or did they, were they not footballers they, at they
3: all? May done, no, it, they, they may have done. No, they may have done. It was just not at the elite level right, that they okay. had played. And uh, what they were required to do was a very simple task. So they, they were presented with one or two very briefly presented flashes, and all they had to do was say whether it was one or two flashes. Okay. Right, so, are
1: they looking at a screen? Or? They're looking
3: at a screen. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, very, very simple task. But the catch in this case was that uh, in some trials, the flashes were accompanied by auditory beeps. And in some cases, those beeps could match the number of, of flashes. So it could be two beeps, two flashes. But in other cases, there was a different number of beeps compared to flashes. Ah, OK. OK. And, and well, they're
1: very quick like tones, is it
3: like beep? Yeah, very, right. very okay. quick beeps like that, uh, like you just did. And now the key thing here is that we were looking at trials that involved, um, like in one condition, there would be one flash and two beeps. Now when the two beeps are presented very quickly together, so beep beep something like that, and then this often leads to the mistaken perception of two flashes
1: because you see one flash you hear two you hear two beeps, you think oh, there's been two flashes
3: yeah, well, it's very when you experience it for yourself, it feels very real yeah. it looks like two flashes so okay. I can tell you that from experience of doing <laughs> this myself. but it's very dependent on the time difference between the two beeps. so uh, they have to be very quickly together, sort of a roughly fifty millisecond difference between them. If you go out to about 200 milliseconds, uh, then, you know, the illusion doesn't happen anymore. Right. Yeah. So we can use by testing a lot of these different time differences, we can look at something that's referred to as the temporal binding window of multisensory integration. And this is simply the window within which uh, auditory visual cues are combined or fused into a singular event. Right. Yeah.
1: Is, is that how we perceive the world as a singular uh, event, as a singular um, experience?
3: Yes, it is like when, you, when, they're, uh, when you're uh, when they're close together. Like, so for instance, if I click my finger, then that, the signals are arriving at your eyes at a different time to your ears. So the brain must allow a degree of tolerance for that, for right. those time differences, so that we perceive it as the one event. Um okay. but if it's longer than about 100 milliseconds then we segregate. Okay, okay, really interesting. So um
1: you got goalkeepers uh, non-goalkeeper but elite footballers and regular joe's like me into a uh, into this room.
3: What did you find? So our hypothesis at the beginning was that uh, goalkeepers would show enhanced multisensory integration in that they would be quicker at doing this so that they would have a narrow temporal binding win- window. That's what we were actually interested in, and that was our hypothesis. And that was and that,
1: that would mean they, that would mean that they would identify two beeps even if they were really close together. They'd, they'd tell it was two beeps and one flash.
3: Um, no, that they would integrate this information quicker. They'd right. be able to integrate the auditory inf- information quicker. They'd have better precision at doing it. Right. Okay. okay. So it would be a narrow temple binding window. So that's what we were expecting to find, and that is indeed what we found. But it was only half the story. The thing that we really weren't expecting was that uh, goalkeepers showed uh, less susceptibility to this illusion overall, even at short time differences. So they didn't really experience the illusion as much as uh, outfield players or the control group at all. And in other words,
1: in other ways they they heard the two beeps quite distinctly even when they were close together.
3: Yeah, they segregate. They 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 tended to segregate the information. rather than, uh the um rather than integrate it like the outfield players did. Right.
1: And when you're doing a study like that, is it important to to um, look at what's happening in the brain? Were you able to do that? Or is it just literally asking them what they saw and what they perceived after each t- test?
3: Not with this study. Like, uh, I am a cognitive neuroscientist, so a lot of uh, questions that I uh, address will use brain imaging of sorts or computational modelling. Uh, but for this, we were actually doing it, uh, the study online um, it, it happened during the uh, lockdown oh right um so it was all done uh over a uh, a web browser effectively so it was just a behavioral task
1: okay and um do you think that this is as a result of goalkeepers sort of self-selecting to be goalkeepers because they have this skill or do you think it is something that's developed as a goalkeeper i guess i mean how do they know how do the the regular Joes like me do
3: um, th- they were much closer to the outfield players. So right. goalkeepers were set apart here. Uh, the outfield players were much closer in nature to the control uh, participants. Um, now, it's a good question about whether it's nature or nurture, whether this is like a sort of a innate ability that attracts goalkeepers to the position, or is it something got to do with training? Yeah. And this is the sort of, our, our data can't really speak to that, but... Uh, we have a hunch, like my hunch is that it's got to do with training and it's Michael's as well, uh, from different positions. I'll start with mine. Um, we've done a lot of work on this ourselves in the lab where we can actually train people uh, to shape their uh, multisensory integration, to improve it just by doing repeated uh, right. tasks. So, um, g- g-
1: g- like, How does that work?
3: Um, well, we get people in and it's a very sort of artificial environment. We get them to do something called a simultaneity task where they have to say, which of 2 audiovisual pairs was simultaneous. And by repeatedly getting them to do this over time, they become much better at it. And then that has a knock-on effect on the temporal binding window where it becomes narrower.
1: So, do, I mean, does that have any spillover into their ability cognitively elsewhere? Like, would, they, would those people who you've trained to narrow this binding window, as you call, would they be naturally better at goalkeeping?
3: Um, well, that's a that's a good question, but these <laughs> things tend to be uh, quite specific for the for the thing, and it's it's really basic research. It's not we haven't really looked at how generalizable it is to other things. Mm. Um, you know, this is work that just came out last year, but it's certainly something that we're interested in. Uh, but to bring it back to the uh, question of nature or nurture, uh, speaking to Michael uh, about it, like his view on it is that even since he stopped being a professional goalkeeper, he feels that he's not as good at this anymore, you know, that he needs to be doing the training repeatedly. Right. You know, the sort of the notion of match fitness, that it's this training at the elite level that keeps his perception sharp. Uh, And, you know, uh, if you let it go for a while, then it sort of slips away a little bit.
1: Is this in any way useful in in sports psychology? Is this in any way um, uh, something that could be used to help people perform better at at an elite level? Do you do work like this with uh, elite sports people?
3: Not yet. This was uh, my first foray into this area, you know, and what was uh, interesting about it was that I was surprised at the lack of research into perceptual differences in Mm. elite level sport. There's not that much out there. You know, there are other facets that I think could be critical. Um, You know, there's one thing that we're interested in called perceptual decision making, which is how we take in sensory information and then translate that into specific actions. Nothing has been looked at this really. Like like what? Give me an example. Um, Like, so for instance, if we were to look at the football, uh, use the goalkeeper uh, position where it would be the case of uh, looking at the flight of the ball from a corner and then using that to guide the action of jumping out and catching the ball, you know, uh, something like that, or to stay in his line. Uh, you know, another example would be in uh, goalkeeping, you know, like sort of using various sensory cues and then using that to jump to the left or jump to the right. right. You know? uh, it just seems like it's something that would be fairly critical for any um, sports performance. Uh, but there is relatively little research done th- on that. Is, is it
1: difficult to study? I mean, you know, what you're talking about here is flashes on the screen. Um, and while it might tell you a little bit about, uh, you know, slight differences in cognition, is it very difficult to study athletes in, uh, in sport uh, in a realistic way outside of the actual game? Or do you need to have, you know, EEGs on, on goalkeepers, um, you know, body trackers and censor and, and, and them up to get a really good idea of what goes on in, a, in an elite athlete um, if they're not playing a game?
3: It's a really good question and I guess it comes down to this sort of notion about how controlled you want your experiment to be to, mm. so that it allows you to really sort of get at the question that you're interested in. You mentioned EEG there. Uh, a lot of my work is uh, uses EEG so that we can look at the specific uh, stages of processing within the brain and the timing of that and yeah. have a look at that. Now, there are um, more mobile EEG uh, headsets coming out now. Um, and you know where you can you can put it on a football player as they're playing the game mm. and you can start to measure brain activity that way yeah so it gives you some sort of um you know it, it's you can't be as controlled as you would be in the lab um but you can measure brain activity while they're engaged in the sport that you're actually interested in so that is a, a route that we're thinking of going down with this yeah i mean i guess uh,
1: i hadn't I hadn't thought about that the, the 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 great thing about a study like this is it's very very narrow right it's it's just testing one thing and you can you can exclude almost all other factors whereas if you're in a game there's so many different outputs you know maybe they're tired or maybe uh, there's a bunch of different things different reasons maybe they're playing a better opposition that would actually not give you great insights into the data is that it?
3: Yeah exactly like I mean there's multiple different variables that you could be looking at at all mm. time and you could get lost in it you know, uh, you know it's not like a, a big data type approach that we're proposing here it's yeah. actually looking at like one specific aspect of perception, and then seen, you know, like future work could see if that has some sort of predictive quality to it. You know, yeah. is it the case that you could develop this simple behavioural test, and it would be able to say whether somebody will become a goalkeeper or a professional goalkeeper or not, or at least give you some sort of probability as to whether they will or not.
1: Right. Okay, that'd be very interesting. Do do a quick test and say. I'm afraid you're on the bench. <laughs> um, uh, and just finally, you know, uh, psychology over the years has sort of um, gotten a bad rap for reproducibility and integrity of data. And, you know, maybe the media running away with stories and your story uh, got a lot of attention. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you feel that um, the the rigor is is there now in psychology and that um, uh, the scientific work that's been done at DCU and, and other institutions is of a much higher quality as a result of, you know you know, the last five years or so, some fairly major studies, you know, being pulled down.
3: Yeah, I think like um, a lot of my work comes from the psychophysical tradition. So psychophysics is a uh, precise behavioural measurements uh, where we test a lot more trials than a typical psychology experiment. So it wasn't really as subject to uh, the issues got to do with the replication crisis in mm. some areas of psychology. Um, Having said that, uh, the one thing that's quite striking about our data is the, how uniform it was across the different goalkeepers. So right. nearly all of them, and this is in a, a supplementary part of the, of the uh, paper, um, but you can see that nearly all the goalkeepers had a very similar uh, multi-sensory profile wow. that was extremely different from that of the outfield players. Oh, you
1: love that data. <laughs> yeah. As a psychologist, you really, that's a real clean line is what you want, right? That that, that really helps your hypothesis. Really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us and um I was going to say good luck out in the field, but you don't play football, do you?
3: I play football, but only five a side. Uh, right, okay. Do you ever we, go on goals? Never go on goals. I'm hopeless <laughs> yeah, in goals. <laughs>
1: <laughs> me too. And that, and that is not the only reason I don't go on goals. David McGovern, Assistant Professor in the School of Psychology at Dublin City University. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. That actually doesn't come as a surprise at all to me, to be honest. I'm a Liverpool fan and watching how Alison has saved us so many times, It is, like, it's extraordinary. I've been in goals and I have failed miserably many times. I just don't have that gecko-like speed. So I'm not surprised their brains work slightly differently. Okay, last week, if you remember, we were talking about this really quirky and clever idea that someone had in New Zealand to turn off all the lights and go around with a UV lamp in the National History Museum. And they found that, weirdly, most mammals glow in the dark. Uh, something we never really knew. And uh, Freddie via email says, Hi, Future Proof. I think predators are less likely to eat prey that glow. That's why the gene is carried on. Yeah, we were trying to figure out what the evolutionary benefit of glowing in the dark would be. And Freddie reckons predators less likely to eat prey that glow. But if almost all mammals do it, then, I mean, a lot of mammals eat mammals. I don't know. Um, Dermot emailed us. He said, Dear Jonathan, love the programme. Number one, the Australian study on animal luminescence sounds flawed. If I heard it right, 124 specimens, all giving the same result. Predators and prey, nocturnal and diurnal, it doesn't make any sense. May I suggest the researchers look for common factors in the specimen collection, e.g. the cleaning fluids used. Were there aerosols? Ooh, I presume they thought of that, right? I mean, if you're going around, if you're bothering to set up a whole study going around the Natural History Museum, you know, putting a UV UV light on animals and then seeing glow and telling the whole world about it and you haven't thought... What if it's just window lean or something like that? Like if you haven't thought of that, that would be very much egg on face. That would be never living it down as a scientist ever material. So I presume they thought of that. But yeah, who knows? Who knows? It could have just been, uh, it could be just something as simple as um, the, a, a, a duster had some stuff on it. Secondly, you were talking about male hair loss. It is common knowledge in alcoholic circles that the nose can get big and red, but the hair won't fall out. Hence the preponderance of charming rogues. Um I, I I don't know what to say. Do you understand that Maurice? If you Do you? Like if you get drunk your nose might get big and then red, but like you won't you, know, you won't lose hair. Uh maybe the alcohol has some sort of protective um ability. Although that is a total hypothesis and don't drink just to keep your hair, just to be clear. <laughs> William via email says, uh, love your space related pieces. Thanks. Did we do a space piece last week? <laughs> Did we was that a, was that a barbed comment? Yeah, I love your space related. I haven't had one in a while. Um, thanks, William. And uh, we asked on Twitter, what causes hair loss, do you think? And Colin on Twitter says, nagging, surely in the top five? Colin, tisk tisk. That's it from us on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Thank you to Marais O'Sullivan producing, Simon Keane, Stephen Daunt, John Byrne, and Hugo de Silva on sound. I hope you enjoyed the program. If you liked it, please do let people know about the podcast. Just send them a tweet saying, check this out. We'd really appreciate it. I've been Jonathan McRae. We'll see you next time on Future Proof. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof
0: with Jonathan McCrae. proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland, Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.